Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Thea Linarduzzi, Commissioning Editor at the TLS, and what you're about to listen to is a special episode of our podcast. It's part of a mini-series of discussions and debates recorded last month at our London Lit Fest, a day of literary exploration and discovery. Our normal weekly show will return on January the 5th, once the editor Stig Abel and I have emerged from a seasonal mince pie and port-induced stupor. Perhaps I'm just speaking for myself there. If you don't already know our podcast, have a listen. You'll find all previous episodes on iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our books of the year from a few weeks ago might be of particular interest for this reflective time of year. Subscribe. It's free. In the meantime, though, here's something to tide you over. For this episode, we reprised a favourite game of ours, Overrated, Underrated, in which a panel of critics select the work of esteemed writers to build up or knock down a peg or two. Hello, everyone. Welcome and thank you all for coming um, to what I hope will be uh, a lively, uh, possibly contentious, um, but always amicable uh, debate. My name is Toby Lishig. I'm fiction editor at the TLS. Um, and as some of you may know, the, uh, the inspiration for this little game uh, came out of an issue of the paper from the late 70s uh, in which various cultural luminaries were asked which authors they thought had been most uh, underrated and overrated over the years. Uh, the responses uh, were suitably forthright, provocative, and uh, at times amusing. Hugh Trevor Roper considered the whole Bloomsbury, Bloomsbury group, excepting only J.M. Keynes, to be the most overrated literary phenomenon of our times, <laughs> and Lytton Strachey to be its charlatan, charlatan in chief. Uh, Rebecca West dismissed Leo Tolstoy for the sheer nonsense of Anna Karenina. And <laughs> Philip Larkin chose D.H. Lawrence mostly on the basis of women in love, uh, which he described as turgid, boring, and mechanically ugly. In the underrated category, uh, we were given John O'Hara, Forrest Reed, Morris Baring, Barbara Pym, and um, slightly interestingly, this given, given his reputation today, Italo Calvino, uh, who was the choice of Eric Hobsbawm. Questions of literary reputation are, of course, always guaranteed to be partisan uh, and passionate. Uh, and with me to tread through the canonical minefield today, if we can have canons and minefields in the same metaphor, are three of today's cultural, uh, leading cultural luminaries. So I have on my right David Collard, who is an author and critic and TLS stalwart. Uh, his most recent book is About a Girl, A Reader's Guide to Eamon McBride's A Girl is a Half-Formed Thing. Um, and in fact, David was just telling me he, um, he's just finished a book of essays on James Joyce. In the middle is Alex Clark, uh, who's a journalist, broadcaster, uh, another TLS stalwart and uh, chair of this year's RSL Encore Award. Uh, Alex is also artistic director for words and literature at the Bath Festival. Uh, and at the end is Michael Keynes, uh, assistant editor at the TLS. Um, he has, among many other things, recently edited a volume of the plays and poems of Nicholas Rowe. Um, he's currently working on a book uh, about literary prizes, which should uh, usefully inform this debate. He has edited... Uh, a bookazine of um, TLS reviews on Shakespeare, which um, will also be of interest to this debate. And this is his third appearance at the TLS London Literature Weekend. Can I apologise so, now? If you came to the earlier events, so, um, almost done with me. If you if you want to go easy on him, then please do, um, but don't <laughs> feel you need to. Um, so the way this is going to work, I'm going to ask each of my esteemed panelists um, to put forward their choices. Their uh, overrated followed by the underrated. They're going to do five minutes on each, so that's about ten minutes per person. I might interject a couple of times just to just to 
keep things going, but we'll then have a kind of more general discussion after everyone's finished talking, and uh, hopefully time, in fact definitely time, for 10 or 15 minutes of questions from the audience. So um, I do hope you will store those up and not be shy. David, I'm going to start with you, as well to my right. Who is ripe for kicking off the cannon, and who deserves to be put there instead? I brought along my copy of an American novel, All the Light We Cannot See, by Anthony Doerr. Uh, which was published in 2014, and uh, which I reviewed for the TLS at the time, cordially. It has since uh, won Pulitzer Prize, the Andrew Carnegie Medal, many other major awards. It has been nominated as Book of the Year by the New York Times. It's been in the New York Times bestseller list for over two years. It has sold more than a million copies in hardback, and I really hate it. <laughs> Imagine a million of these. 530 pages, that's 530 million pages, <laughs> of writing like this. This is a, a nighttime air raid on the medieval citadel of saint Marley in France, set in the occupation, um, a subject which the author has researched very diligently and doesn't understand. <laughs> nighttime air raid. Inside each airplane, a bombardier peers through an aiming window and counts to twenty. Four, five, six, seven. To the bombardiers, the walled city on its granite headland, drawing ever closer, looks like an unholy tooth, something black and dangerous, a final abscess to be lanced away. I, I, I'm not sure why all the bombardiers agree that this nighttime air raid is a form of dentistry, but as soon as, we, <laughs> as, soon as, we, as soon as we have the unholy tooth, whatever the hell that is, it becomes an abscess which has to be lanced, lanced away. And it's like that on every damn page. This is page four. There are 530 pages of writing like this. Preposterous, pretentious, pompous. It's like an intrusive musical soundtrack on a movie you don't much enjoy, nudging you and coercing you into a reaction. Uh, okay, so that may be a trivial and sneery way of saying what a rotten writer this is, but it's a rotten book. It's morally corrupt. It normalizes Nazism by treating it as a, a relativist phenomenon. He makes an equation between the Allied bombing of German targets and German activities in Europe during the Second World War. He glamorizes and aestheticizes Nazism. He loves the leather boots and the uniforms and the kit. Um, he's really into all that. It's, it's unpleasant. And what is it, do you think, that's, that's made it shift a million copies and that, that's, that's caused the welter of prizes? And well, Trump's America, who can tell? It's, it's, very, it's a real page turner, um, I have to say. Every chapter is about two to three pages long. It's written relentlessly in the present tense. So, as I said in my review, it's not so much a novel as a 500-page movie pitch for a major motion picture event, which I would prophetically correct, it's going to be made into a big film. And it's set in the occupation, the characters are two children, a, an angelic blind girl uh, who's French, and an albino Nazi boy who's a radio expert. It simplifies and cretinizes the subject. It, it, it does a great disservice to history, to Europe as we understand it, it's an act of appropriation by an American writer, and the Nazi kid and, and, and the French kid, they talk in fluent contemporary American English, which is so annoying, <laughs> uh, with occasional German or French words dropped in, which ones the author sort of knows. So I'm clicking a man when he's up. Oh, he's sold a million copies <laughs> of this dreadful book. Has anyone read it? Um, are you with me? <laughs> but I'm, not, I'm not knocking the readership. It is very readable, um, alas, but... Um, Brings me to the one I'd like to do. Promote. Do you think, because your review at the time it was relatively even handed, I mean, you did talk out, you did point out the yeah. bits of awful prose, but do you think you'd have given it a slightly different review had it already been. I think I'm, I'm going, very courteous. You were I, courteous. I, did say, I did actually say this is bad writing and, I, and that it didn't sit well with a, an understanding of Europe during the occupation, that it trivialised and infantilised the subject. So um, it did shock me probably as much as it shocked the author that it went on to become this colossal success. Um, a commercial success. And he's a good writer. Oh, he's capable of being a good writer. But it puts me in mind of Cyril Connolly's axiom, um, write for an audience and lose yourself. Write for yourself and lose an audience. More, ha more happily. It's an <laughs> uh, extraordinary combination here. Agatha Christoph is not the Hungarian Agatha Christie. You have to get that out of the way. Um, it's, it's her name. 
fled at the time of the uprising in 1956, first to Austria, then to Switzerland, where she settled with her baby and husband in Neuchâtel, the French-speaking part of Switzerland. Had a very difficult life, spent much of the next 30 years working in factories, raising a family, and published this novel, her first novel, when she was 50. And in a quarter of the length of all the light we cannot see, she wrote a modern masterpiece that is as relevant and urgent now as it was then and will be. She's little known in Britain. She's celebrated in Europe and the center of a huge cult in Japan, I've discovered recently. The notebook is extraordinary. Has, has anyone here read it, by the way? There any, so a few, oh, a couple of there. hands there. Um, it stays with you. Like this book, the main protagonists are children. In this case, identical twin boys. Um, who never use the first-person pronoun I. Everything begins we. We do this, we do that. It's uncanny and unnerving. It so sounds like such a simple thing, but they never know which one, <laughs> which one has the agency in either way. The boys, it, it's set in an unspecified war, in an unspecified country. The boys are taken by their mother to live with their horrible grandmother in a remote town near a border. And the boys initiate a regime of, of, of self-improvement, which is very harsh, involving fasting and hours of immobil immobility and reading the Bible and keeping the notebook. It's, it's a very strange, haunting and, and worrying book that renews itself all the time because it speaks to us as much now as ever. It's about borders and migration and identity and loss of self and, 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 and loss of homeland. Um, it's moved me as much as anything I've ever read, and I reread it this week, I think for the third or fourth time, and was equally bowled over and astounded because... This is, this is a double espresso with a scotch chaser, as opposed to slush puppy. <laughs> this is for grown-ups. Yeah? This problematizes the idea of war and conflict and, and occupation, as opposed to turn it into diverting light entertainment uh, that wins the Pulitzer Prize. I would urge you, please, to read copies of this book on sale in the lobby, um, as is my own. Um, <laughs> About to go, and a declaration of interest from the same publisher. I only found out about Agatha Christoph because CB Editions publish her, a tiny independent. They can't take out advertising or marketing, but I can't tell you what a huge impact this book made on and, my undervalued writer. And that wasn't the first translation of Christoph into English when CB brought it out, was I it? I don't it, think it, so, but it's, it's the best. It, it was written in French. Did I mention that? She was Hungarian. She learned French from her children, who grew up as native speakers of French. And she wrote the way she does. And it translates beautifully. She writes this way because she has to. It's not an affectation. She writes like a 10-year-old child in French. But the boys, the twin boys who are 10 years old, they witness and perpetrate the most terrible things in order to overcome their particular circumstances. And, and that stays with you. I know you've read it, too. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've read it. Declaration of Interest, I think it's absolutely superb. I completely recommend it so to everybody as well. It's absolutely wonderful. underrated in Britain and rated... Elsewhere, there's no algorithm for this, but she's a, a writer. I really urge you to follow up this and the subsequent two volumes of what is a trilogy. But the notebook is. C can you explain her neglect in this country at all? I mean, is it, is it just something that she, someone just who fell beneath the radar? Did she not get enough critical attention when the first translation came I out? Think the name's a problem. You think the name's a problem? I really do. <laughs> um, Agatha Christoph. It sounds like a sort of cheap ripoff of the real thing. It's unfortunate, uh, and it's a silly thing to say, but. Um, I don't see why she isn't a huge seller. In Japan, there are, there are Agoto Christoph clubs where people dress up as the characters. And there's an app. And, there's, and there is a movie, and uh, an acclaimed one. Of the, of the notebook. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, made in Hungary. Um, I'm not sure why. why that, that weird alchemy that means one book becomes a runaway bestseller and something else languishes. It's up to you to make a difference there and go out and buy lots of copies. And perfect Christmas gift. <laughs> if, if you want someone to have a harrowing Christmas. <laughs> but it is, it's harshly satisfying or satisfyingly harsh. It really quenches any taste you have for austerity as opposed to lush nonsense. And there's something extremely timeless about it as well. I mean, it's set, it's set during a kind of an unnamed yeah. war in an unnamed Middle Europe. And well, it's like Kafka in a way. Yeah. It, it reinvents itself with every reading. So I'm not going to read from this because I couldn't do it justice, either, either vocally or in terms of stress. Um, so I'll stop with just one more quote from All the Light We Cannot See. This is the angelic blind French girl waking up in saint Malo um, and feeling with her fingertips the scale model of the citadel that her father, um, who's very good at this sort of thing, has made so she can navigate her new home. 
I'm not sure how fingertip sensation of rooftops helps you to navigate at street level. <laughs> Mary Law wakes to church bells. Two, three, four, five. <laughs> this is how you write the best song. <laughs> Two, three, four, five. Faint smell of mildew. Ancient down pillows with all the... How does she know it's two, three, four, five if she wakes to the sound of bells? How does she know that she's hearing the second bell? <laughs> oh, it's Take a minute. It's like that on every page. You have a lot of fun um, laughing at Anthony Doyle's flailing attempts to engage with, with, with fiction. But seriously, this is, this is the, the book of the year for me every year. Excellent. Thank you, David. I will move on to Alex. Goodness. <laughs> How to follow yeah. that? Um, <laughs> Can you? You're a tough actor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I have chosen um, Lady Chatterley's Lover by D.H. Lawrence, which feels a little bit in some ways like shooting fish in a barrel. And, and I did think... I, I quite like that book. <laughs> when did you last read it? About ten years ago. But, oh. you know, I, I wasn't a child. Oh, okay. No, but I mean, delighted. You know, no, it's fine. I'll give well, it, we'll give it, give okay. it all the barrels, and yeah. I will be the fish. As you were talking, and you described um, Agatha Christophers, what did you say? A, a coffee and whiskey and what, espresso what? with espresso with, with whiskey, with whiskey chasers. Double espresso, I and I thought, well, what is this book like, um, Lady Chatterley's Love? Well, I thought it is like a small glass of really unpleasant wine when there is white wine. <laughs> acidic and mean when there is no hope of anything else to drink <laughs> the rest of the evening so you have to drink it we've a new literary critical apparatus here of what drinks these novels Sorry. exactly yeah. exactly but you will, drink it. Yeah. You will yes, drink it you will drink it because right. what else are you to do um, so you submit yourself to this kind of mean glass of wine and you are actually rather kind of infected by it and its meanness of spirit and that's what I don't like about this book which obviously has meant a great deal to many people, including many writers who summon up Lawrence in general as the great spirit of English writing and perhaps English pastoral writing in particular. Um, but I find that while I very much admire slight in fiction, I don't like slyness in it. And I think this is a book that is almost entirely defined by its slyness. He never really says what he means, despite the fact that it feels explicit. It's very easy to read between the lines when you meet, for example, or you first hear of um, Clifford Chatterley coming back from the war. He comes back, quote, more or less in bits. And then a little bit later, we find that his hold on life was marvellous, and there is such a kind of hatred of this man for surviving and thereby condemning his wife, who, by the way, is also sneered at and hated for many reasons to a sexless life. My favourite description of her, as in I think it is the kindest description of Constance Chatterley, um, is something that comes from her father, who is worried that she's gone a bit sort of... Um, thin and miserable looking uh, and is being unattended to shall we say and says to her husband who of course is more or less in bits so what can he do about it um, she shouldn't look like this she really is a bonny Scottish trout and this is <laughs> as good as it gets it's as good as it gets and to to release her from this life of terrible passivity um, of as she understands it a male appetite-dominated world in which women must only yield. Um, and nonetheless, another favourite uh, marker of, of Clifford Chatterley, as Lawrence says of him, he was aristocracy, not the big sort, but still it. So the snobbery is kind of forcefully in there to yield uh, herself to this, to find herself in a sort of horrible house from which horror of horrors you can actually see the colliery in the distance. Um, but it's still, it's still worth it somehow. Um, but the only thing that she can do to get herself out of this situation is to submit to a man who eventually tires of her or becomes frustrated with her anyway because she basically can't climax or come to crisis as the novel constantly has it come to crisis her crisis his crisis at the same time as him and this incredible incredible concentration on the um 
mutually achieved, um, what would be the word for it? Simultaneously arrived Simultaneous at. crisis. Simultaneous crisis. It's become so incredibly overwhelming, bringing with him, in, it in its wake, all the snobbery, all the kind of meanness of, of the weird circles that they move in, the fact that Clifford, of course, becomes a writer, he becomes a well-known writer, which actually really dooms him. Um, but everyone in this book is doomed, and they can only apparently... Um, release themselves via simultaneous um, orgasm. But um, I think there are two bits that I particularly wanted, two little snippets. One is is Lawrence on full, full philosophical form, really summing up the world. The world is supposed to be full of possibilities, but they narrow down to pretty few in most personal experiences, which is like the most <laughs> crappy bland <laughs> sentence to describe anything. I like the hedge at the end in most in, in most, in most instances. <laughs> um, but this is also wonderful. They're forever trudging across this grim um, park that surrounds this horrible house at Rugby, um, and Connie's always having to put oh the dreadful scene where Clifford's. Uh, motorized um, bath chair, as it says, it only has a small motor. Um, <laughs> the motor basically breaks down, and of course, inbounds Mella. And then they have this terrible scene, it goes on for pages, of him saying, I can get it up the hill. No, you can't. It won't go. And of course, actually, they don't say it. They say her. The bath chair, the motorized bath chair with the small motor becomes a her. It is just signposted. It's just terrible. Um, but this, on one of their walks, Clifford, and you hear my voice is giving out of the shit floor of it. Um, Clifford says, uh, they're talking about nature. They're always talking about nature. Um, and uh, she says, Oh, he quotes Keats in a way that would make you hate your husband definitively smashed to bits or not. Um, ravished is such a horrid word, she says. It's only people who ravish things, to which Clifford replies, oh, I don't know, snails and things? And this is in our account. I mean, it's just enough with the kind of ridiculous... Depressed, <laughs> depressive. Is he not having fun? Is he not having fun a, there? No. Is it funny? <laughs> no. Probably. No, it's not funny. It's not a funny book at all. It's a depressing book. Is um is this a Laurentian aberration then? I mean, do, do you not like D. H. Lawrence, or is is this is, is this a? I, I don't love him, but I think this, this is, is the absolute the, nadir, and of course it just it's, it's suffered obviously. I mean, this is to, to state the absolute obvious, it's suffered because of the judgment. Um, that it had literary merit and there, therefore could flout the Obscene Publications Act. It wasn't, it, you know, it, the, the trial didn't fail because actually it was judged that we could talk about simultaneous crises. Um, it was because this book had literary merit and I read it and I read it and I read it and I don't see where it is. And if you like it, tell me where to find it. <laughs> uh, I'll need to reread it. I'll certainly refresh it. I can reveal actually to the audience that I said it as a real knee-jerk reaction. What's every DHR, Lady Chatterley's other, and then afterwards I I thought, oh, God, I better read it again. <laughs> I haven't read it for ages and ages. And I did it with that kind of terrible fear that I would actually think it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and, of course, there's some confirmation bias in this. But I did start to read it again. I thought, no, it's, it's just abysmal. It's an abysmal book filled with mean-spiritedness and hatred for the lower classes, for the upper classes, for women. Her, this, the last bit, the last it, bit. It her, is definitely a bitter book. Oh, goodness me. Her sturdy body and slow movements. And this is the woman who's the kind of sex pot of the novel. I mean, honestly, enough. Well, quickly then, why? Why? Why do people still love it? Is it just beyond you? Do you have any idea? Do you, do you think? think do you, do you, or is it? Is it falling out of the do, people? Don't anymore now. It's fishing about. So I think it is partly an English thing, not only to do with with an obsession with sex and with sexual um, openness, but probably also to do with class. I think we're still actually very disturbed by the idea that um, a posh lady might fall in love with a, a gamekeeper hmm. it's at, very, very at some exciting. level. So I guess but do you does. think? Do you think so? In another fifty years' time, we won't even be having this conversation anymore because no one will, you know. In general, I think yeah. the canon. I think it's, you it's, know the canon is usually harder to subvert than that. Alas, yeah. yeah. So probably we Pro will. <laughs> so fortunately, not you and I. <laughs> More happily. More happily. Um, I um, 
Oh, it's interesting. You you mentioned that I I am a judge. I'm a judge on a second novel uh, prize, and that of course is a very interesting thing to do because you're you're looking at work that is beyond that first sort of dramatic burst onto the scene, um, but must then you know actually hopefully set course for a kind of a subsequent writing career. And the book that I want to talk about, which is Still Life. Um, by A.S. Byatt. It's not her second book, but it is the second in her quartet, which is often known as the, the Frederica Quartet, which began with The Virgin in the Garden. Still Life followed in 1985. But long before that, now, as you know, Toby, not to give too much away about our private dealings, <laughs> but I've been writing about um, Angela Carter for Toby, not in quite as timely a fashion as he might have wanted, <laughs> but never mind. Um, and happen. how delighted was I when I found um, this this recollection of Byatt's, of meeting Angela Carter, which I will just quickly read to you, because it is sort of germane. It's also just quite funny. On the way out, this very disagreeable woman stomped up to me, and she said, my name's Angela Carter. I recognised you, and I wanted to stop and tell you that the sort of thing you're doing is no good at all. No (laughs) good at all. There's nothing in it that's not where literature is going. Funnily enough, A.S. Byatt took it quite well. And she took it quite well because she thought that Angela Carter uh, meant it quite authentically, mm. uh, that she wasn't just sort of being utterly disagreeable for the sake of it. She, she believed what she was saying, and she was almost at some level saying it to be helpful. Now, this was in 1969. It was long before the writing of Still Life. In fact, Byatt had only published um, her first two novels. Um, but then she came on to this work. But the idea that she, in some way, however she internalised this, I mean, she remembered it enough to tell the biographer, I suppose, however much she internalised that idea that she was not doing the kind of thing that was where literature was going, up, going, she didn't care. She had decided to write about a subject, in this case the subject of two sisters, loosely speaking, across this, across this um, tetralogy. In fact, as it emerges, one sister. Um, and sorry, and sorry, has anyone read Still Life here? Is it so, so only one person in the room? That's, I'm not that's interesting. to spoiler it. <laughs> there is a tremendous, as you will know, there is an extraordinary spoiler, and I won't, I won't give it away. What? But that's interesting. It's one of your points, isn't it? She's obviously, A.S. Byatt's not particularly underrated. She's a big novelist. Lots of people have read some of her books, but not enough people have read this book, is your, no, no, is your point. No, no, that's right. Yeah. And yet, I don't know whether how many people have read The Virgin in the Garden, for example. Actually, not that many more, <laughs> but a couple more. Um, how many people have read Possession? Yeah, there you go. Well, yeah. there you go. Um, I mean, it's nothing wrong with reading Possession, really. Don't get me wrong. But if you enjoyed possession, um, you know, even if you skipped over the bits of poetry, um, go back and read um, and read these books, or indeed go forward, because the, it kind of came in the middle of this quartet, didn't it? Um, but it is interesting that she had decided, she's often accused of um, over-intellectualising her work, of um, importing into her novels great... Um, wodges of, of research and interest and a very sort of detailed interest. And yes, there is um, Gauguin here, there is ornithology, there's poetry, there's Van Gogh, there's a lot of Van Gogh because some, one of the characters has written a play. Do there's you want to give a little of, outline of what their novels about I should then, do, or, I? Without, without any spoilers? I should do. Well, yeah. all I will yeah. say is that there are two sisters. Frederica is the sparkier one. She has gone to Cambridge. Uh, she ends up at one point in Provence where she's um, an au pair. She, that's where the kind of Van Gogh stuff comes in. Also a man who she has loved and whom we met in The Virgin in the Garden has written a play about Van Gogh. So that, that's, and then we follow her to Cambridge um, where she has a fairly good time, quite a lot of un-Laurentian sex um, and just quite a lot of fun. Meanwhile, her older sister Stephanie, who has a brilliant mind um, and a particular passion for Wordsworth, uh, has married the local curate whom she loves very deeply and who loves her very deeply and she is embarking on a non-intellectual life as a curate's wife and as the mother of, of small children. So that's a sort of, that's a kind of outline. And I have to say, there was one review at the time which said, while South Africa burns and the very world threatens to burst apart at its seams, the polite and mannered English novel persists, comma, incredibly. <laughs> the incredibly, I thought, was that coup de grace in that sentence. But I just read that and thought, we are not reading the same novel. It is anything but polite and mannered to me. It concerns the lives of women who have decided to do things with their intellect that are going to take them in 
in, in directions that they will have immense repercussions for them and for the people around them. Um, and they are both, in their own way, trapped in those worlds. And it's about what they are able to make of their prisons, in a way. Um, so that is my, I think it's a wonderful book. Uh, and I think it's a book that we should all go back to. And just not to spoil or anything, but it has a scene of such drama and such... It's one of the most harrowing things I've ever read in all of contemporary fiction. And it stays with me. And I afterwards read, uh, I think it was in a Paris Review interview, Byatt said, well, you know, that was actually supposed to feel, you were supposed to feel like that had really happened. And I did. So I, I commend it to you. It is a book that will make you cry. No better commendation than that. Thank you. Um, on to Michael. Michael okay, I'll, I'll start with, it's interesting that you had a kind of knee-jerk reaction to about Lawrence. You knew you were going to go for it. Um, I think I felt that with, with both the books. Let me talk about, uh, first of all, well. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Two authors. I'm going to talk about two authors um, as a whole, really. Um, and I think I knew, certainly, which one I was going to say was overrated. The underrated one for me is a mid-century writer called Bridget Brophy, who uh, was a friend, had a relationship with Iris Murdoch, was married to Michael Levy, director of the National Gallery. She has an excellent background. She was sent down from St. Hugh's College in Oxford, either for drunkenness in chapel or sapphism. And she, uh, her father was a writer called John Brophy, her uh, mother, a fantastic um, American called Charmian. And she wrote plays as a child, and then she had her first novel published called um, Hackenfeller's Ape. Uh, she was very, I think, I think talking to people in, in the kind of animal rights movements, there's been a conference about her only last year. She was ahead of her time in, in terms of um, championing animal rights. She wrote the seminal essay uh, for the Sunday Times in 1965, just The Rights of Animals, which is one of those pieces that hits you over the head and said, if you went out on the streets of London with a hook and there's some meat on it, and passerby comes and eats the meat and you hook them up and then you eat them or do things to them, uh, that'd be pretty appalling. Not many of you would do that, would you? Well, that's what's happening to fish all the time. And she goes on banging that drum, whether you agree with it or not, it's kind of immaterial. She goes on banging that drum for the rest of her her life, and she's she's right of um, passion and full of similar beliefs about the rights of um, of everyone. She doesn't call herself feminist, for example. She calls herself a sex egalitarian. So, one level, there's a background to her that's all about this kind of, um, I think, at the time, quite 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 forthright, interesting, striking views. And at the same time, she's a, a novelist whose inspirations are Bernard Shaw and Evelyn War, Ronald Furbank. Henry James, uh, Jane Austen, and Mozart. And she has a very clear set of interests that somehow could lead to her being a very narrow and uninteresting writer. But what actually happens is that every book is a new challenge and a new take on those ideas. Her, the underlying interest is in form. So her interest in Mozart is key here, is making something that has this kind of intricacy. The novels are usually all very short, you know, but they turn beautifully. They're sort of made like lovely kind of... Um, intricate clocks. And she also has a very good way, I think, with an opening line in non-fiction context. Um, several British citizens have a sense of humour, 
that is, however, almost unconnected with the British sense of humour, a national heirloom rather like a Victorian wardrobe. The three greatest novels of the 20th century are The Golden Bowl, A la Recherche de Tom Perdue, and concerning the eccentricities of Cardinal Pirelli, this is a time when Furbank, who wrote the last of his books, is entirely out of print. The thriller is the cardinal form of the 20th century. All it, like the 20th century, wants to know is who's guilty. And she goes on like this, hitting people over the head. She has a, a heyday in the 60s, in the early 70s. And then she's not really done with us. She stops writing um, long-form fiction for a time. She's not really done with us, but she does something that I think will be important to many writers, which is she starts to champion uh, public lending right. So that all sorts of paid money, this is something her father believed was important too, were paid money every time a book was borrowed and um, taken from a library. And she and uh, Francis King and um, Maureen Duffy uh, led this incredible campaign that went on for, I think, over a decade, uh, involved Michael Foote at some point, was fiercely resisted in all kinds of corners, you know, librarians, apart from anything else, what I'm sure it would be uh, to administer all of this, but finally got through. So she did something, and, and her, her life, I think, was, her writing life was tragically cut short in the 80s by multiple sclerosis. She achieved all this as an entirely independent kind of Brompt, old Brompton Road philosophe, an, an amazing kind of um, unique figure who somehow managed to completely disappear off the critical map. I, how, how widely read was she in the, you know, in the sort of 60s and 70s? Not, was she more read for her journalism or for her... I think she was known as, a, as, as this... Um, Ian Hamilton, anonymously in the TLS, called her one of our leading literary shrews. It's no higher compliment. And uh, she, so she was known, I think, within kind of literary circles. The books get published in the States, they get published and reprinted here occasionally. And there's been a bit of a revival in recent years. So I, I say she's entirely unknown, that's not actually fair. She's, she's, she's sort of on the, on the border. The people who know her, I think, become aficionados, um, a lot of them anyway. Um, and there's, there's, she's simply not out there on the register. It seems very strange to me that, um, I don't know if you saw, there's a recent, I think quite good um, LRB piece about uh, Iris Murdoch by Colin Burrow. Which I, I thought he got to the nub of what's what's good and what's bad about Iris. She's got a lot of faults for her many you know wonderful things as well. It's just unbelievable to me that Iris is is kind of I don't know on the verge of being canonised. Or if people don't read her, they know her names. And there was a time when people would sort of because she was churning these damn things out, and it really shows. Um, and she wouldn't let them be edited. Um, people would go to them as a kind of annual entertainment. The Iris Murdoch Bridget's not like that. And in fact, they had a kind of falling out over. Um, uh, Bridget just saying bluntly that she thought she told her what she thought was wrong with them, and they completely, you know, the worst Iris is just completely lack form, and she goes on in terrible sort of ways. So they're very different writers, but it, it seems to me very strange that Iris should be in, maybe in print and on the radar, and Bridget isn't. Is there a biography? No, there isn't. <laughs> but I think there ought to be. I think <laughs> I mean, you know maybe those things. Help, because, you know, one of the things I thought would be interesting to talk about is how you know the ways in which authors do get rehabilitated, and obviously. Biography is, is one way. So actually, Angela Carter is quite a good example. You talked mm. about her, the Edmund Gordon's recent Carter biography, which is fantastic. Um, obviously, Carter has in no way fallen off the critical radar, but it's a it's a having a biography suddenly twenty five years after her death is a way to get new readers um, to start reading her. Well, that, I, I mean, that's famously that... something that happened with the original TLS overrated, underrated, isn't it? Because Barbara Pym was, was that, is entirely out of print at the time? Is yes, right? I think so, yeah. And then Larkin and David Cecil recommended her as their underrated writer. It can function as a sort of public service. Apparently so. We just imagine that. We could be actually helping people here. Wow. Uh, it seems unlikely, doesn't it? But, um, but yeah, that, that's, that actually is, is, seemed to be a case that she, she was then... Um, old books brought back into print. She had new ones that hadn't been published that actually helped that happen. So, yeah, more overrated, underrated events. That's probably the key <laughs> element here. I don't know about, you know, biography teaching, of course, you know, people being able to pass on a passion for these writers. I mean, we see it occasionally happen, something like Stoner, I suppose. Yes. I, I don't know if anyone likes well, that's the book, been, but that's, that's suddenly been perpetually back. rediscovered for the past 40 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this, I mean, time, it this time it, it sort of take, it took, yeah. didn't it, which is very real. I just There's ask it. about something like Stoner, now, which I think is a very good book. But there is, what happens, do you, in your views... When something is sort of rediscovered, but it's so over-rediscovered, if you like, mm. that it sort of just then kind of deadens the atmosphere. Do you know what I mean? With Stoner, I mean, it, was, it was Ian McEwan, wasn't it? He said on the radio, oh, this is a wonderful book, which I've just discovered, which no one's heard of, although quite a few people had heard of it. And then suddenly this huge 
But then it, basically, unless you were saying this is literally the best thing <laughs> I've ever, you were, it, it was kind of heresy, yeah. which seemed also slightly mad. You know, I decided not to read it on the basis of Where all that. Where is it kind of <laughs> properly rated? I, I don't know. Sort of, anyway, sorry. Maybe somebody in the audience will know that if you answer that for us. What is properly rating a book? So if we will know what overrating and underrating is, what's the middle ground? It's an algorithm. Quite easy. I think sales are one thing, but the great judge is posterity. It's time that ultimately decides whether a writer deserves rating, let alone overrating or underrating. But what measure of time, even, if you see what I mean? What measure of time? You know, I've got a little list. Can I? No, 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 no. Let's yeah, do, no, no. Then we let's do this one. first. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, my fault. 1916, 100 years ago this year. These were the best selling novels of 1916. I'll just give you the titles. 17, When a Man's a Man, Just David, Life and Gabriella, Bars of Iron, Nan of Music Mountain, A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. That one's still around. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back to that. But posterity yes, has done yes, for them, and yes. they've, they've died with their readers. We don't connect with the readership, or with the author, or with the novel. I would read The Man from Music Mountain. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> yes, Sorry. I'll take that one. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, that's all right. That's fine. Uh, shall I talk about an yes, un- overrated author? Yeah, why and don't you talk about your... Um, your okay, so... so Bridget Brophy is Bridget Brophy, the I, I, would, I would recommend. If you ever catch a book, second-hand copy, or whatever, you, you know, and I think uh, Faber finds some if you out in print. One of the things that she did as a provocative uh, jeu d'esprit was a book called 50 Works of English and American Literature We Could Do Without. And um, she uh, didn't spare uh, some canonical authors. It's just a title we could also bring back. She didn't spare the Brontes or Dickens for Pickwick Papers or, or Beowulf. Why are we reading that, she said. And she also didn't... Sp- Spare um, quite a ineptly structured play called Hamlet, um, which I think she, you know, felt was all about this, you know, self-centered oik who draws everyone into his path. And and I I have my own reasons, which I'll come to for harboring similar things about Hamlet. My overrated author is definitely William Shakespeare. I rate Shakespeare, whatever that means. I rate Shakespeare. Very highly. Let me point this out now. And I think we can justly describe you as a Shakespeare scholar. I mean, you, okay, that's, written about that's, that's too kind. I've, I've, okay, I've written a book about Shakespeare in the 18th century. I'm very nice, obviously, when the kind of Shakespeare cult gets going. And I have just edited this book on sale in the foyer about Shakespeare and, and you know, in, in the TLS. But when you obviously delve into that kind of thing, you discover more about how he comes to have, have the standing he has today. There's really, there's really two aspects, I think, to the argument that he's an overrated author now. Um, one is I don't think there's this freedom. You're, you're probably seen as a slightly odd person if you, you don't go, oh, you know, like, oh, Stone is magnificent. There's a Shakespeare equivalent for that, which is that it's odd to say this play isn't very good. And I, I, I think that that obviously happens. You know, students up and down the country must be going, this is rubbish, what the hell is this? But in, in sort of critical discourse, it seems very odd. I, I was, there was a TLS episode of the TLS podcast a couple of weeks ago. We talked about Shakespeare plays we'd like to revive. Um, Stig Abel, the um, editor of the TLS, and me, and uh, Thea Lenarduzzi, who produces it. We all chose different plays, but the underlying sort of assumption was there are some that are actually lower-tier Shakespeare plays. But somehow it's not, okay, you, you've got to have the complete works. That's what you take to your desert island disc. Uh, desert island, rather, not your disc. Um, I said I'd quite like to see another um, revival of Love Labour's Lost. Stig rolled his eyes at that. That is not his idea of a good time, going to see Love's Labour's Lost. I don't know anyone else feels about that, but he does not want to. And I was reminded by compiling the Shakespeare um, TLS uh, edition that's out there that we had a fantastic review by uh, a scholar called Juliet Fleming a few years ago of the Judy Dench um, Midsummer Night's Dream at the Rose in, uh, in Kingston. She just began by saying, it's just not a very good play. And then went on to elaborate on this. But it's so striking and stuck in my mind, you know, it's years ago she wrote this, just because no one ever really gets to say that. So I think there's one aspect of it is that you turn off y- y- the critical part of your mind. Do, do you mean, when you say no one gets to say it, do you mean in polite discourse in the media or more in I mean, I mean, I mean, people can, can mutter it and say it all the time to themselves, of course. But it's not something that's just an acceptable, you know, out there kind of point of view. It, you know, he's the canonical English writer. And so that, and that which kind of brings me to the second part, which is 
that those mutterings aren't really, you know, I don't, I, I don't really agree with those. I like, I like all the plays. Like I said, I rate Shakespeare. But what really gets my gut is the kind of, the kind of absolutism that transcends criticism, and that is the more significant force because it has historical basis. It comes in in the 18th century when when Shakespeare is put on this pedestal by by Garrick and um, and the like um, editors of Shakespeare, um, Johnson, Pope, among others. Although Johnson and Pope were prepared to have a pop at him occasionally. Well, there's a difference. I'll come back to that. Yeah, Pope, in fact, that's the key difference. Let's start with that. Pope's edition isn't seen as a great scholarly achievement, but it's very interesting if you're interested in, in, in Pope and, and having a pop at Shakespeare because he marks the passages that he thinks are beautiful and gives them a sort of tick in the margin because, of course, he's a better writer. He knows who he's talking about. And he gives you a little downgrading and warns you about the bits that aren't any good at all. So it's a kind of very judgmental version of Shakespeare. That's what you could do in 1725, which I think it just came out. I might be wrong about that. 1720s, anyway. If you go along to, to Johnson, Johnson gives you this, this kind of monolith that isn't, again, not very important textually in scholarly terms, but of course, critically, he gives it his, his benediction, and that really matters. And it's around this time, that, I'm sorry, well, not exactly around this time, but over the preceding decades and after Johnson's edition, the idea that you could tinker with Shakespeare and give, say, King Lear a happy ending, or give Romeo and Juliet a happy ending, or get rid of the, you know, the fool, or anything like that, that starts to drop away, because suddenly this is becoming too important for you to tinker with. You, you'd rather bore your theatre audience than mess around with it. And this, is, and this leads directly to the kind of grandiose, ridiculous sort of Victorian 19th century versions. We have real rabbits running around on stage in Summer Night's Dream, and scene changes take half an hour, because then it's got to be damn well real. Because that's what people think Shakespeare is. He is the real... You know, he's, he's giving you the real merry England, the real deal, all that kind of business. And the other baleful effect of this, um, which I'll stop after this, but yeah. <laughs> the other baleful thing that this kind of absolutism leads to is the kind of authorship controversy, where Shakespeare is seen as being so great and so right about kings and queens and the rest of it that it can't possibly be a, a commoner, an ordinary mortal who wrote it. He's presumably written by Francis Bacon, or the Earl of Oxford, or maybe Queen Elizabeth herself. These are actually theories that have been put forward. People devised incredible machines to analyze the text of the first failure and show there are coded messages there saying, I, Edward de Vere, wrote this, or some such. You can use the same techniques to find the message, I, William Shakespeare, wrote this. It's absolute hogwash. There's no foundation in it um, in terms of you know the sources. Of course there isn't. How could there be? But it doesn't stop people speculating. So over 150 years since uh, Delia Bacon came up this the first version of one of these theories, uh, of course, she thought it was Francis Bacon, true to her name. People are still at it. I get books at the TLS telling me that Shakespeare's really so-and-so, blah, 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 uh, reliably, you know, once or twice a year. So I, I blame the kind of overrating of Shakespeare, the putting him on a pedestal. I, I blame for that phenomenon. And so it's the, actually, it's the mystique, the, the mystique itself. Yeah, it's is. a very damaging, dangerous thing when you can't say your mind, speak your mind. Yeah. Um, are there any other authors in danger of, or writers, I should say, in danger of being treated in that way? I mean, you know, we, you were talking about Joyce earlier, and you've written a book about Joyce, and, but how, you know, there's Bloomsday, there's a whole kind of, sort of carnival around him, that, and then it can sort of blur critical thinking if there's too much idolatry, like there's bar idolatry. Is there anyone else that, you know, that anyone thinks has, or is in similar danger of being, um, uh, yes, uh, sort of overly idolised without critique? Are you really um, talking about where a sort of industry where the critical yes, yeah, and, 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 uh, yes, and I think the Brontes might be another right, okay. example, yeah. um, I suppose. And um, you're right, the protecting people from the writers from their fans. I did recently go and see, and I don't don't mean to be mean, um, a, a reimagining of um, Villette. And um, after about 10 minutes, a woman, uh, it was at the West Yorkshire Playhouse, and a woman got up uh, and got to the end of the row with some kind of commotion, partly because she was telling her husband that he had to come too. He wasn't <laughs> quite sure whether he should be or whether he shouldn't be. And then she, and I won't do the, the broad Yorkshire accent, but then she said to the, to the, um, the, the attendant, um, I shall be complaining, I was promised Charlotte Bronte's Villette. And sometimes one might think, come on, open your mind. And I was actually thinking, yes, you are, you are very right. There is, there is a limit to reimagining before one has to actually just go and imagine oneself, really. <laughs> Um, we haven't got actually that much time, but I was going to just ask a quick question about notions of the canon and canonicity, and it's obviously a huge, a huge question. We don't really have much time to, to, go, to go, go into detail, but what, have, has the way in which we 
canonised texts changed in the past sort of 50 years or so. I mean, there's obviously prize culture, something that Michael's writing about at the moment. Academia's changed. We, yet, and yet Lawrence, for example, is still, you know, part of this canon. You know, Agatha Christoph isn't yet. How is this changing? And are we too reliant on prizes, or or, or is that, are they doing a good job? What's the what's the kind of temperature of that at the moment? Do you well, think? they're quite separate sort of things. Do you, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. You know, and and that, pure sales as well. You, you know, that's, yeah. that that is sort of more a marketing question. Like, yeah. You know, the prize culture stuff. Well, certainly it relates to how much publishers feel they can take chances on things. I mean, you would certainly say that, wouldn't you? But I don't know the canon. I mean, I feel that we're all, probably not you too, I feel we're all quite old. So, <laughs> quite old. you know, will younger people think of Lawrence? Maybe not. I don't know. So I don't a, know. Th- there's always a canon of sorts. And it's, of not, it's not fixed. And posterity sees to it that people drop off the canon uh, and are reinstated. Something Ben Ockrey said a couple of weeks ago at the Manchester Literary Festival, the Nigerian novelist who I have great admiration for, and said many sensible things, but he said something that I would challenge. He said that he, he resented as a, an undergraduate. Um, and the phrase he used was, was distorting my nature, he said, to read the Western canon. <laughs> and I understand exactly what he means. But isn't that what literature expects from us? It expects us to distort our nature and extend beyond our own experiences and boundaries and to find out what it is to be a Nigerian, for example. Everything I know about Nigeria, I learned from Ben Okri in The Famished Road. Um, we need to meet a, an author halfway. The canon suggests that we can't impact on them. Mm-hmm. But if you're reading just things that you find endorse your own behaviours or reassure you the world is as you want it to be, that's not reading at all. It's, it's he, in front of he the box didn't there. mean that, did he? I don't know. What, I think what he meant was, um, at a point where he may have first been apprehending the canon, yes. the Western canon, he was seeing nothing that reflected mm. his own life, the, the facts of his biography. Mm. Um, and I think that is a kind of slightly different yeah, I, question. Well, I think that has changed. The canon has a broader canvas mm. from which to draw. But I think the literature yeah. is a window, not a mirror. And I, I don't want it to reflect my circumstances, what I know about the world. I want it to But to isn't open. that his argument? Yeah, I guess, yeah that sounds like his argument to me. It has yeah. been a mirror for, for so many people for mm. such a long time. It's one difficulty that it's trying to be... It's one difficulty, surely, it's trying to be both. I mean, there are other words they constantly use about Shakespeare, sort of universal. It applies to all of us, but that's obviously not true. With something like Hamlet, um, it's only with around Coleridge, I think, that people started talking about the idea that he, he hesitates, he pauses. So there's a pre-Coleridge Hamlet who isn't like that, he isn't ours. And we, there was a session here, you know, just before about Shakespeare and Cervantes, and we didn't actually talk about um, the windmills at all. Which is, you know, if you ask people about Don Quixote, obviously people might mention that episode. It's about four lines in the whole, an absolutely massive book, but it's what people take away as a, as a detail, you know, as a kind of keynote to the story. And in some ways, it's quite misleading because the novel's not just that. It's not just having a poke at, uh, you know, Chibabra um, Romances. It becomes much more and much bigger. So I wonder if, um, you know, coming out of that, I thought about the canon is that it, it's shorthand as well. Yeah. And it's an impossible function. Yeah. We need it, but we can't. Mm. Yeah, can't they can't do all those things. Mm. Um, right, we mm. don't have uh, a great deal of time, so I'm going to open up. Uh, Questions um, and yeah, you need to wait for microphones. Look, apparently, it's the one reader of still life. There you go. Who <laughs> hates still life? <laughs> um, yeah, very very briefly on still life. Great book, not available in ebook. Possession is a number of other buyouts, but not yeah. that one. Yeah. I'm. You talk about the canon. I'm more interested in the what I'm going to call the anti-canon. Um, and I'm going to mention someone which will make everybody groan. Jeffrey Archer. Now. What makes him not a good author, not in the canon, uh, when he is selling like hotcakes? So what is it, where's the list that says, Archer's over there, not good, um, and so-and-so is over here, good. Right, so how can I tell that someone is good from being not good? He'd like to take that on. I've got a slightly different answer about that, which is, is you reminded me of the work of um, somebody called James English, Professor James English in Pennsylvania, because we could all you know, give some version of an answer to that based on um, you know, immense critical acuity, um, but um, and not, I couldn't. But his approach is really to use a big data um, set and look at our copyright novels and feed all, all the words into the computer. There's very variations on this theme, but just to take one kind of example of it. Feed the words in and ask the computer to sort out, say, 
what was the popular fiction, what was the bestsellers, and what were the novels that had prestige, or you know, meaning they won prizes or they were reviewed. And the computer could quite reliably do that, you know, with the kind of you know degrees of error, but it could it could work things out, matching you know what was reviewed at the time, what you know, and sort of up to the early 20th century, I think. And it's not something you can do for the Archer period, the Age of Archer, which is undoubtedly what we're going to call it in the future, because of course it's all it's all in copyright. You can't get this kind of material. I suppose Google have the biggest data set that would help you actually answer, come up to a real answer to that question. And uh, whether they want to use it for that, I, I don't. I doubt it. I guess most of the books that you read out that we hadn't heard mm. of were popular, yeah. were vastly popular. They were all written by Jeffrey Archer in the 90s. <laughs> 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 the Archer Can I pick that up? I mean, if James Joyce, let's say, James Joyce is the Usain Bolt of prose fiction, <laughs> and Jeffrey Archer is the damp towel on the locker room floor. I, I, I can't argue that. It's really self-evident, is it not, that Archer is not canonical because he's a rubbishy writer. He's not even a good genre writer. I believe he's been accused of plagiarism on occasions, and that may be a spike in his quality. But, um, and Archer is a huge seller. So were they. They, they won't be read Archer's books after his, his core constituency have died out. I don't see young people picking up on Jeffrey Archer. Um, he's not quite as sexy and engaging as... Other writers considerably younger. He had a great foundation story, didn't he? As well, it was all you know. The his first book was all about him making his money back, wasn't it? Mm. I mean, that well, the first novel, not a penny more, not a penny less, was mm. themed on on you know that was the idea of it. A man had to make his money back, but it was also tied to to mm. Archer having lost money and wanting to make it back. I think. So as soon as that like, story is dropped out so of popular consciousness, great, then it, it was a great yeah. kind of story. Yeah, and then, of course, you those know, novels stay in print. I know the new ones come out, and they're. We should probably move on from Archer just in case there are any other, (laughs) if no one minds too much. Um, Any other questions? Thank you. Um, Friends of mine and relations have always been puzzled that Elizabeth Taylor and Rosamund Lehman and some other writers of that period, English women writers, are resurrected and then they're forgotten again. Has anyone got any comments on on the panel, on, on that group of writers, Elizabeth Bowen, Elizabeth Taylor, Rosamund Lehman and some others? Olivia Manning, so Olivia Manning, like yeah, that. yeah. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's uh, obviously they're all uh, female writers, and they fall into the kind of um, love and domesticity trap um, that is set by um, the literary patriarchy. But um, <laughs> there it is. Um, but I think also there is there are sort of degrees of how do you decide what forgotten is, if mm. you see what I mean. We do know when things are revived because suddenly there is a ripple of interest. People who you you know you know are talking about them. You see reissues, um, but I'm not sure that when that first bit of sort of public facing kind of interest dies, it necessarily means they're forgotten. And I do think there's a kind of again it goes back to the idea of what is kind of properly rated, if you see what I mean. You know, you can't now that we can't. Everything can't be kind of number one all the time. I don't know. I mean, that's just a sort of a, a sort of possibility. I don't know. Well, Barbara Pym was defibrillated by the TLS and remains in print and is a marvellous writer. Elizabeth Taylor, I couldn't agree with you more. Mm. Unfortunate mm. name. <laughs> uh, to, to share your name with the most famous film star of the 20th century, you think someone might have gently pointed this out to one or the other of them. Um, <laughs> but... Um, Julian McLaren Ross, very interesting example, one of the very great writers of the 1940s, much admired by his contemporaries, Graham Greene, even more. Uh, someone said to him once, you're a writer's writer. He said, no, I'm a writer's writer's writer. <laughs> and he vanished without trace until a brilliant biography by Paul Willits. Um, ten years ago. Uh, ten years ago now. And suddenly um, his, his books had been circulated in photocopies in Samizdat version by his fans. Suddenly, all of his correspondence was published, and all of his novels came back into print, and he remains in print, and he's, I think, if not canonical, he's permanently available now. And that's very encouraging. So, the, yeah, so that's all it can take. It can take a new biography, or it can take a few yeah, reissues, and then suddenly... Yeah. no harm. And I'm seeing this with a little-known Cornish poet called Jack Clemo, uh, mm. whose biography and selected poems appeared this year, and there's a, a little bip on, on the um, life support machine that suggests maybe, just maybe, he'll attract a few more readers because he's a marvellous visionary poet and worth discovering. Um, time for one very quick one more, um, as your hands up first. Yeah. I just wondered whether you had any comments about A Little Life. Anyone read it? 
I, have, I mean, in what, in, what, in what sense? Well, I found it relentlessly depressing. I couldn't understand why, it's so, why it was on the Booker shortlist. Because I felt that Jude was such an unsympathetic character that he didn't seem to have any redeeming features. And I couldn't understand. Well, if people haven't read it, then it, it wouldn't... Well, I suppose the thing to, to say about it as a kind of, you know, just as a sort of broad brush thing is um, it's an incredibly harrowing book. It's also a very long book, and it's one of those kind of... Apart from that, as you say, there is that main character, somebody who's been very, very badly damaged um, and continues to suffer uh, into his adult life. Um, but it's also a kind of ensemble piece. It's about kind of friendship. I really didn't like it at all. Um, I did subsequently to writing a quite unpleasant review of it um, have a conversation that I felt that it was just so relentlessly bleak you were just pummeled into a kind of empathy submission um, and yet none of it read true. The book is in large part about suicidal tendencies and about self-harm and I didn't come away from it thinking I knew anything more about suicidal tendencies and self-harm but somebody did explain to me that they felt that it had been written with a sort of um, a kind of deliberately melodramatic sort of you know all the unbelievability was supposed to be unbelievable I know this is a kind of get out clause of a of a um, of an explanation and I suppose that may have slightly shifted my view but not very much I would basically have written the same on that so, cheery note sorry suicide, and I think <laughs> we're going to have to end the discussion but um, thank you very much uh, everyone for coming thank you to David Collard Alex Clark and Michael Keynes thank you thank you Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of our 2016 London Lit Weekend mini-series. Until the normal weekly podcast resumes on January 5th, you can catch up, of course, on previous episodes and visit our website, the-tls.co.uk. There's plenty there to keep you busy. And you can do all the usual too, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and review us on iTunes. See you in 2017. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.